So I shared with you a few, several months ago now that before my feet hit the floor in the morning, the prayer that is running uh, through my mind and, 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 and as, I, my, as I get up in the morning, it comes from Exodus chapter 33, God, show me your glory. And that's it. Show me your glory. And he does. Maybe that's in walking across the farm and uh, sharing a popsicle with coriander, and she looks up and says, I love you, Pop Pop. Or maybe that's as you stand in a trout stream and you, you just enjoy the surrounding. Maybe, maybe for some of you guys, it's just being in the woods this time of year and, and just being in nature. Uh, this morning, as I came over from the, the second, from the first service into here, and the praise band was practicing, and uh, Finn was up here and started to get a little noisy, I saw God just in his content little face as we walked up and down and, and just worshiped with our praise team. God, show me your glory. Well, I've added a new prayer to that as well, and it's not, it, it's not in Scripture, word for word, but it comes from Charles Spurgeon. And you can read biographies and autobiographies about this great preacher, and you will find over and over and over that every time he left his seat to come into the pulpit, from the time he left his seat to the time he got here, he was praying the same words over and over and over. I believe in the Holy Ghost. I believe in the Holy Ghost. I believe in the Holy Ghost. And to be honest with you, I started letting that run through my mind about the same time that we started studying Micah together. Because Micah, if you're not feeling it, it's, it's heavy. There's, a, there's a, just all kinds of judgment on there. And we keep trying to say that, yes, there's, there's judgment and this is harsh, but this is God's love still because he's playing a long game and he's more concerned about our eternity than he is our right now. But it is tough. And it is heavy. But sometimes when things are tough and when things are heavy, that is exactly what we need to hear. So sometimes we don't like to admit it, but when God smacks us with something and it hurts, it's probably because we needed to hear it. So my prayer has become, I believe in the Holy, and I'll put it in Tony Foreman's terms, Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit, and I want him to show up and to keep me focused and to keep us focused on what he is trying to teach us, even in this sort of heavy, dark at times, gruesome at times study like Micah. So, so that is where we are. And we're now in chapter 3 of Micah. And chapter 3 gives us a snapshot of what Jerusalem looked like around 700 B.C. And it's a picture that, that Micah paints, and it is very ugly, and it is very shocking. Uh, and he dis what he does is he describes the corruption that's behind the scenes that is taking place. And he rips back that, that religious mask to reveal the ugly truth. And he spares no one, especially the rich and the powerful and anyone who wields any type of authority or influence. And he, he doesn't spare anyone. Now, these words aren't coming out of nowhere. It's not like God just woke up in a bad mood one day and said, I'm just going to unleash. No, this is not coming out of new, nowhere. Because way, way back, you might remember a guy named Moses. And God presented him with a couple tablets on it that had the law of God on it. You could go back even further to the Garden of Eden where God blessed his people and said, here is everything for you to enjoy. 
whether it's Adam and Eve, whether it's Moses, whether it's Aaron, who was the first of the Levite priests and all his, all his family members and all his countrymen who were there to keep putting God's holy word in front of God's holy people. Priests and prophets and kings and judges. The Israelites knew better. They had this intimate relationship with God. And, and, and most of the time, multiple voices, multiple prophets or priests who were speaking truth into their lives, and yet they still veered way off track. And God is very patient. And God is more loving. And now what we see in Micah is his his way of bringing his people back in. And it looks rough, and it is rough, but it is still God's love. Remember, God is holy, and as a holy God, he cannot sin against us. Everything that he does is for our long-term, long-game good. So here we are in Micah chapter 3, and we see some of the same stuff that we've seen in the first two chapters. Like Micah chapter 1, he just, he, all this unknown, unspecified sin and idolatry. And then he, he, he systematically calls out every idol that they may have, every place that they have placed their faith, everything that they have risen to the place of a lowercase God. And he has said, because you put your faith in here, I'm going to remove it. You people who live in beauty town, uh, you're going to run through the streets naked. Those of you who live in a town that's fortified and strong, you're going to jump in your chariots and flee because there's a war coming that even you can't win. And then in, in, in chapter 2, he peers into the bedrooms of, of wealthy, wealthy land barons who are sitting up at night devising ways to steal from the, the, their Israelites, brothers and sisters, what is rightfully theirs because Joshua and Caleb gave that to them. God gave that to them when they crossed over the Jordan River into the promised land, and they're looking to, to steal from their fellow Israelites. And he calls out the false prophets who are supporting this who instead of calling a timeout and saying, whoa, 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 don't do this, don't listen to this, they're jumping right uh, in, in the thick of things and just supporting them and giving people what they want to hear. And it's only when, at the end of chapter 2, that this shepherd king comes crashing into captivity that he leads this noisy flock of people out, ultimately in victory. But we only get a tiny glimpse of the power and the freedom that Jesus brings before we jump right back in to chapter 3. And here in chapter 3, we clearly see that Micah is not finished exposing the sin of Israel. There's corruption not only in real estate and property, but also in the courts. What's, a, a, what's an oppressed Israelite supposed to do if his neighbor is doing something against him, if he's playing his music too loud at night and he needs something or, or he, the taxes are getting too high, what does he do? He's supposed to be able to go to the courts. Supposed to be able to go there and get justice, but instead of helping the people, they're being devoured by the court system and spat out, they spit out the bones. In chapter 3, Micah has three target audiences. And that first target audience in, chapter, in verses 1 through 4 is this idea of unjust justice. Those who are supposed to be protectors, purveyors of justice, but are going the other direction. 
If you have your, your Bible or your, uh, your phone or your tablet, I encourage you to read along in Micah chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Then I said, now listen, leaders of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, aren't you supposed to know what is just? But you hate good and love evil. You tear off people's skin and strip their flesh from their bones. You eat the flesh of my people after you strip their skin from them and break their bones. You chop them up like flesh for the cooking pot, like meat in a cauldron. Then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because of the crimes they have committed. Your reading skills don't have to be that awesome to be able to just like cringe when you read through those four verses. Right? You, 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 have, you have God, and he starts off by saying, now listen. And if you're a parent, you know what God is doing right now. He is grabbing his kids by the cheeks, looking straight into their eyes and saying, listen to me. He says, you were charged with, with issuing and protecting justice, but you're doing the exact opposite. This is, and again, this is self-inflicted ignorance. They knew better. They had generation and generation of teaching and law. He said, you're acting like farmers at butchering time. Do you get that image out of what we read? Or worse, you're acting like the Assyrians who are now encircled around your holy city of Jerusalem because the Assyrians uh, had this, this practice of when they captured somebody, they would skin them alive as a way of torture. You are acting just like the people who are torturing you, who are, who are tormenting you. Remember back in chapter 1 when they went through all of the, this is your idol, I'm taking that away. Well, here we see that sort of routine continue to follow. The sentence is, you have abused justice. And in that verse number 4, God says, because of that, you will not receive justice from me. Target audience number two doesn't receive any better news. Uh, in, 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 verse, in, in verses five through seven, again, it says, this is what the Lord says. And you might think that if there's a part of Judah where people could still find justice, it would be by going to the synagogue, by going to the temple and finding justice there. Shouldn't the priests and the prophets condemn wickedness and stand up for what is right? Shouldn't, shouldn't they be voices in the city crying out for obedience to God's law? Malachi would say in, verse, uh, in chapter 2, verse 7 of Malachi, for the priest's lips uh, should keep knowledge, and they should seek the law at its mouth. But here, in Jerusalem, in 700 B.C., even the pulpits of the land were corrupt. Instead of criticizing the wicked, the prophets supported wickedness. Instead of defending the righteous of the land, the prophets attacked them like a brood of vipers. Jerusalem in 700 B.C. was corrupt in all parts. From the greedy and power to the synagogues and the teachers, all across they were greedy. Listen to what Micah says to these prophets, to these religious leaders who are hiring themselves out instead of standing on the word of God. In verse number five, this is what the Lord says concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who proclaim peace when they have food to sink their teeth into, but declare war against the one who puts nothing in their mouths. Therefore, it will be night for you 
without visions. It will grow dark for you without divination. The sun will set on these prophets and the daylight will turn black over them. Then the seers will be ashamed and the diviners uh, will be disappointed. They will all cover their mouths because there will be no answer from God. Micah is saying through God that you're sinning by using the gift of prophecy wrongly, so that gift of prophecy is going to be removed from you. You were charged with leading people in the light, right? that light's going to be taken away and you're going to be stuck in darkness. Sounds a whole lot like what Revelation chapter 2 says in this letter to the Ephesus church, where it says, remember how far that you have fallen. Repent and do the works that you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. That lampstand was their message. It was their voice. It was the influence they had. And God said in Ephesus, and he's saying in Micah, he said in Revelation, if you don't repent, and he's saying in Micah, because you haven't repented, because you have abused this, I'm removing the light. I am removing your voice. You will no longer be able to prophesy in my names. Target group number three, the theme just continues going. So you had the the, the judicial people, you had the religious people, and here in verse number nine, uh, Micah just throws everybody back in the pot just for one more reminder of what is coming. And he says, listen to this. It's a summary statement against Israel's leaders, anyone who wields any type of influence. In verse number nine, it says, listen to this. God still has us by the cheeks just talking to us. Listen to what I'm saying. Listen to this, leaders of the house of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, who abhor justice, who pervert everything that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with injustice. Her leaders issue rulings for a bribe, her priests teach for payment, and her prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord saying, isn't the Lord among us? No disaster can overtake us. The sentence to the people of Israel is that you went about things your own way. Worse, you adopted the ways of the people around you, of the very people who are driving you into the walls of Jerusalem, of the very people who are, who are taking your identity from you, of the pagan cultures that are corrupting you and oppressing you. You chose to become like them rather than to become like me. And the sentence comes in verse number 12. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become ruins, and the hill of the Temple Mount will be a thicket. Think of just a picture of what is happening here, right? Zion is the, is the mountain in the city of God at Jerusalem. Right? It's, it's going to be plowed like a field. No longer is it going to be this fortified, strong city. It's going to be leveled. It will become like ruins, and the hill will become a thicket. Nothing but briars and trash crop. That's what this holy city is going to be like. And man, there ain't a lot of good news, if any, in those 11 verses that we've read this morning. But if you've been paying attention, you notice we skipped over one. You notice we skipped over verse number 8. So if you would, let's go back and let's pull in Micah chapter 3 and verse 8. It's like Micah just interjected in here. Like, as for me, however, 
I am filled with the filled with power by the Spirit of the Lord, with justice and courage to proclaim to Jacob his rebellion and to Israel her sin. Let's dig in just a little bit deeper here. Let's, let, let's, let's see what he's trying to get at and what we can walk away with. Because just like the last verse of chapter 2 was our glimmer of hope, this is our glimmer of hope. I hope for today. So, so Micah says, as for me, I am filled. I am a, a, a man of God and I am filled. I am filled with what? Power. Where does that power come from? By the Spirit of the Lord. We think the Holy Spirit is sort of uh, absent in the Old Testament, but here we see Micah, a man of God, saying, I am made, I am filled with power from the Spirit of the Lord through the Holy Spirit. And what is he filled with? Justice and courage. Now, this word justice comes from, uh, come from the Hebrew word mizpah. And Mizpah is this big umbrella that covers a whole lot of stuff. It's not, it doesn't have like a very narrow uh, definition. Uh, It's used by the prophets uh, and it has a a definite ethical and civic uh, implications. In Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 5, it's defined as caring for the needy. It's the same word. In Isaiah, uh, in Isaiah chapter 1, it's to, that we should learn to what, learn to do what is right to seek justice, to correct the oppressor, to defend the rights of the fatherless, to plead the widow's case. You flip over to near the end of the New Testament in James, in the Greek word that, is, that, is this, that comes from that Hebrew word is used again to define true religion as justice, as caring for orphans and for widows. Is there this holistic definition of what justice means? It's far-reaching, and we're to have justice and courage. And what Micah here is, he's just repeating what was said in Deuteronomy chapter 31 when he says, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, of your enemies, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. We are to go with justice and with courage. That's what, that was Micah. I'm filled with the Spirit from the Lord with power to do justice and to have courage. This could be us, guys, because Micah is a picture of the man of God that the New Testament says that we all are. As men and women who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, we are members of this priesthood. That's what 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5 reminds us of, that we are a holy nation. We're a chosen race. We're, we're, a, we're the special priesthood, and we're all responsible for proclaiming the Word of God to the people of God and the world around us. We are filled. From the day we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are filled with that same spirit that Micah was filled with thousands of years ago. And we are filled with power. And we are filled with justice and courage. It's exactly what 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7 reminds us. That for God has not given you a spirit of fearfulness, but one of power, love, and sound judgment. Just like Micah was filled, we are filled too. To do what? Well, for Micah, he was filled with power and for, for justice and, and, and courage to proclaim. To proclaim what? Rebellion and sin. 
Whose rebellion is sin? Well, it's not just Jacob and Israel. It's not just a guy, Jacob, and, 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 or a guy, or a, even a small, smaller group of people, Israel. It is all of God's people. Micah is to proclaim the rebellion of God's own people. For us, well, we can see all throughout the New Testament that we too are supposed to proclaim. We are to be the proclaimers. We are, we are to be sharing this, We're be, but we have a message, and this is where we need to be careful, church, and this is where we need to pay attention, because we are to proclaim a message to the world, and we are to proclaim a message to our Jacob, our Israel, the church. So, so what is that? Well, in the New Testament, we are to carry on the mantra, uh, the words, the rhythm of the Apostle Paul, who in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, said, I don't want to know anything. I desire to know nothing. I desire to speak nothing but Christ and Him crucified. And over and over and over in his letters, Christ and Him crucified. Christ and Him crucified. To the church, church, we are to preach Christ and him crucified. We think the gospel is only this saving message that we share to the world, and it is, but it's not only that. Do you know in the New Testament, the gospel is taught and preached and declared to the people of God more than it is to those who are outside the church? We proclaim this message to the church. We preach Christ and him crucified, and then what do we do? Well, if we were just to take all of Scripture's encouragements and commands in the New Testament together, that means after we preach Christ and Him crucified and, and people put their faith in Him, then we spur one another, we encourage one another, we disciple one another, we discipline one another, we teach one another, we instruct, we correct, we rebuke, we judge, we hold each other accountable in the church. Why? Because we should be so in love with the one who left heaven to come here and live a life that we couldn't and die a death that shouldn't have been ours, that we want to spend all of our energy in looking and imitating him as closely as we possibly can. That we want to look more and more like Jesus Christ than anything else around us. And we want those who we call brothers and sisters to do the same so that we don't lose our voice, so that our voice doesn't get drowned out by culture. We want us together to be so in love with Jesus that we look more and more like him and less and less like the world because we know that every single time that he tells us something, he's giving us truth that we can take to the bank and we don't have to weigh whether it's true or not like we do stuff that comes from the world. We proclaim Jesus and him crucified, Jesus and him crucified. And then at times we are tough on each other and other times we're hugging each other, but it's all done in love for the building up of the body, for the people of God. And then we proclaim a message to the world. And what do we proclaim to the world? Christ and him crucified. Christ and him crucified. Christ and him crucified. And then you know what we do? We Charles Spurgeon it. We just start praying. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And we trust God through the power of the Holy Spirit to convict people of their sins. We have no conviction power in us. That is not our job. That is not why we were created. We were created to make much of our Savior, of our God. 
God is in the salvation. God is in the conviction process. That's the whole purpose of the Holy Spirit, to convict people of sin. He Once upon a time, he convicted you of sin, and you surrendered to Jesus. And I hope every day that you put your feet on the floor that he convicts you of sin in your life so that you can look more and more like your Savior. Our job is obedience. Christ and him crucified. That should come off of our lips all the time. Christ and him crucified. Christ and him crucified. And then to have enough faith in our God, in our Savior, to trust that he's going to do what he said he's going to do and what he's proven that he, is, he can do for thousands upon thousands of years. Our job is responsibility. Our, our responsibility is obedience. God's is salvation. The world is so confused right now. I don't know if you've noticed that or not. And the world is so down on Christianity. And a lot of that, church, is our fault. Because we have spent a lot of energy, a lot of money, a lot uh, uh, of, of voice power. And we're, we, we get hoarse because we're screaming the wrong message over and over and over and we need to return to proclaiming the correct message. See, the world has this long, long list of things that the church is against. And we don't even need to start naming them this morning. But the church has this ever-growing list of things that we are against. They know that. Why? Because we tell them. We let them know. The church has the, or the world has the foggiest idea far too often what the church is for because we have put up another message more valuable than Christ and him crucified. So we must be more committed to proclaiming Jesus and him crucified, Christ and him crucified. We must be more dedicated to that than anything else, introducing people to Jesus and then letting him do the work this isn't Tony Foreman's opinion. If you go to the New, New Testament, this is the model that Jesus followed. Right? He came down pretty hard on his people. After spending three years or close to three years with the apostle, I, I, Jesus would, and I just picture him sort of grabbing his forehead right, and, and saying, have you guys not been with me long enough that you, you don't understand this? Don't you get this? Oh, ye of little faith. You remember words like this coming out of Jesus' mouth, directed at the, the most religious, the most church people of the, of the age, the Pharisees, and he called them a brood of vipers, whitewashed tombs. You are snakes. Jesus came down hard on the religious people. How did he come down on those who were outside of a relationship with him? outside of a relationship with God. Well, let's you go to John chapter 4, and I encourage you to do this sometime this week. Go to John chapter 4 and just see how Jesus dealt with those people who were living in sin. There was a woman who came to the well, a Samaritan woman who, who wasn't supposed to be talking to by cultural standards. And this woman came in the middle of the day, so she didn't have to deal with all the comments and all the scorn from the religious people. And what did, God, what did Jesus do? He didn't lay into her. 
He, did, he, didn't, he didn't just stack up everything. He had a conversation with her that changed her life, and she went away a different person because of her encounter with Jesus. Go a few more chapters to John chapter 8, and you meet a woman who is caught in adultery, and the town is ready to kill her because of her sin. And they, they're surrounding with stones, and I picture somebody tossing Jesus a stone or two, and he, he's got him in his hand. And, and Jesus said, all right, here we go. Right, and we're going to start with the people who don't have any sin. Go for it. One by one, they drop their stones and go away because all of them had sin. And there's Jesus, the only one left, holding a rock. And I imagine that girl's still cringing just a little bit. And Jesus says, I'm not going to condemn you either. Go and sin no more. He didn't read her the riot act. He didn't, he, he, he didn't, he, he didn't list out all, all of her shortcomings. And it, he had an encounter. He had a relationship. He showed mercy. And an encounter with Jesus was enough. It was enough for the woman in John chapter 4 and the woman in John chapter 8. It was enough. If it was enough for Peter when he got out of a boat and walked across the water, if it was enough for the Apostle Paul when he was walking to kill Christians and he had an encounter with Jesus that changed his life and the direction of the world forever, shouldn't an encounter with Jesus be enough for us? And should not we be preaching Christ and him crucified, Christ and him crucified above anything else that comes out of our mouth? Church, we, we, we must live in such a way that when the world sees us, even though they may disagree with us, even though they still may think that this Jesus it, it, it was just a, just, a, just a historical figure, not the son of, of God, we must live in a way that they're going to hold us in high regard so that we might just have the opportunity to share Jesus with him. Right, let's, let's just fly through a few verses of Scripture um, before, we, before we wrap up. Acts chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, he, um, Luke writes this. He says, none of the rest dared to join them. He's talking about other people who saw miracles, who, saw, who heard teaching, and they didn't join them, but they held them. They, they, the people praised them highly. They held them in high regard. But then the very next sentence after the period comes the capital letter, but believers were added to the church in, grow, in increasing numbers. And it started with how the Christians acted and how they loved. John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus' own words, I give you a new command, love one another just as I have loved you. You must also love one another by this by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 and 16, Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, conduct yourselves honorably uh, among the Gentiles. Okay? Conduct yourselves honorably among the unchurched so that in a case where they speak against you as those who do what is evil, they will, by observing your 
good works. Glorify God on the day of visitation. We talked about this a couple series about that this isn't just a yay God type of golf clap. Because it says in the day of visitation, these are people, on the day of visitation, you are either going to be trembling in fear because you're headed to hell forever, or you are going to be applauding and glorifying God because you're bound for heaven. And these people, because they saw good works and then had an encounter with Jesus, they are glorifying God on that day. Church, this is how we must live. We see in Micah, we see throughout the rest of Scripture that God is harsh on sin. He's tough on sin, but God is even tougher on the sin of his people because he knows that his people are either the biggest attractor to him by the way they love and they live or the biggest obstacle to him by the way that they live and the way that they love. So, let's take the harshness, the toughness of Micah and let's let that wake us up. And let's take these small glimpses of goodness that we see in Micah chapter 2, in Micah chapter 3, and that we see throughout the Old Testament, here and there, until we get to the New Testament, when Jesus appears on the scene as a crying baby and develops and lives a life as a perfect man who died for our sins. And let's let the goodness of Jesus keep us focused. How do we do that? We go back to a verse like Micah chapter 3, verse 8. As for me, I remember that I'm filled with power by the Holy Spirit. Spirit from the Lord with justice and courage to proclaim. You want another place to go? I, I, it's pretty easy to go flip through Scripture and find encouragement, and I encourage you to cling to this book rather than listening to the voices uh, from the outside who are trying to give us advice. Uh, one place I would tell you to start this week, <coughs> go and read Second Timothy. It's only four chapters. Take you maybe 15 minutes to read through, but listen to some of the powerful reminders in, in, in the book, in the letter of 2 Timothy. We've already read verse number 6. Therefore, I remind you uh, to keep ablaze the gift of God that is in you. For God has not given, you, given us a spirit of fearfulness, but one of power, of love, and of sound judgment. Right? In verse number 8, it reminds us to rely on the power of God, not our power. That's like a, an old rickety roller coasters at King's Island, ups and downs, ups and downs. The power of God is solid and constant. If you go to verse number two, we remember that, that we are strong in grace, just like Paul. And you can go all throughout in verse number 15, or 16 of chapter two, avoid irreverent babble. How do we stay focused and tapped into the power? We don't let ourselves get sucked into side conversations and arguments uh, and, and debates about stuff that does not matter. Why? Because we're too busy focusing on Christ and him crucified, Christ and him crucified. And you can go all throughout. And in verse, in chapter number four, verse number two, Paul reminds us what Micah told us, what Micah told the Israelites thousands of years before, proclaim the message. Persist, whether it is convenient or not. Persist in it. Proclaim that message, whether you wake up and the sun is shining or whether it's downpouring. 
persist in proclaiming the message, whether you're having a great day or, or you're just having the worst day of the week, the worst day of your life. Persist in the message, whether you feel like it, whether you don't, whether you see this as a good conversation or, man, this is going to get ugly real fast. Persist in the message of Jesus Christ. Back to Micah chapter 3 as we close. <clears throat> Using Micah 3 verse 8 as a standard, this week, I want you to ask an answer. Ask an answer this question. Is this you? Can you say, as for me, I am filled with power by the Holy Spirit, with justice and courage to proclaim? What are we proclaiming? To the world, we're proclaiming Christ and Him crucified. Christ and Him crucified. To the church, we're proclaiming Christ and Him crucified. And we're in, we realize that we're in this together and we're spurring each other on to salvation. I want us to end with a verse that I know that we know in our heads. We've known it, some of us, since we were knee-high, we, since we came to vacation Bible school, or since we came to Awana. We know this verse with our head. Most of us can recite it, and this is where our KJV kicks back in, because some of us, or the NIV, or something that we remembered from years ago, John three sixteen. But I want us to think about it with our hearts as well, because this is a powerful section of Scripture. It's something that reminds us of our place in the redemption story, something that reminds us that it is God who saves, not us. Our role is to live and to love and to act in such a way that when we are afforded an opportunity to introduce people to Jesus, they don't slam the door in our face, but they hold us in high regard. And hopefully, just maybe, they will have an encounter with Jesus. And having an encounter with Jesus is enough. For God so loved the world in this way, that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world that he might condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only son of God. This then is judgment. The light has come into the world Sounds a whole lot like what we were just reading in Micah chapter 3. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who practices wicked things hates the light and avoids it, so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light, so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. For God so loved the world that he gave his son so that everyone, world, everyone, that's us. That's our neighbor who is 10,000 miles away from Jesus. That's the person down the street who, 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 who is hard to live with. That's the coworker who just gets under your skin like this. For God so loved the world so that everyone who believes in him will not perish. And anyone who lives by truth, we went from everyone to anyone, that anyone is me, is you.
For God so loved the world in this way that he gave his only son for us. And what should we be saying time after time after time? Nothing more frequently but Jesus and him crucified.